We've been taught now that masculinity is very toxic. And maybe there are times where someone's acting uber aggressive and you could say that, but does that mean that anything that's masculine now is toxic? So I think now, especially boys, are getting this message that if they want to play roughhouse or anything that maybe is typically a boy trait, I don't know, is now toxic or just who they are is, is toxic because masculinity is toxic. So they're, they're fighting who they are and they're not allowed to be themselves. And so they're being stifled as people. And, and we, we need boys to be boys. We need people to be themselves. And just because you don't like it, <laughs> in your narrative I, I, I think that's terrible I just think that people should be allowed to be who they are and not stifle it because I think what's happening is boys especially now they're they're repressing who they are they're scared to show who they are and they're and I think that lends itself to more mental health issues and more isolation and and it's upsetting and scary to watch you must be some kind of therapist I am some kind of therapist and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Pamela Garfield Jaeger, also known as the Truthful Therapist. She is a licensed clinical social worker in California, originally from New York, but not currently practicing. Instead, Pamela has turned her focus to creating resources for parents. She recently released a comprehensive guide called A Parent's Guide to Mental Health that you can find at her website, thetruthfultherapist.org. And I'm excited today to pick her brain about this resource. Welcome, Pamela. It's great Thank to have you. you. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be talking to another like-minded therapist. All right, so you've been working on this for a while. I remember when we first started talking maybe six months ago, you said that you were working on this parent resource. It must be great to finally have it out there in the world. Tell yes. us about what is a parent's guide to mental health? <laughs> yes, it's, it's been a labor of love, as you said earlier. So I had this vision. I'll, I'll tell you the origin story. So I was talking to someone who was building an, an online school for homeschool parents. And she was talking about all the resources she was building on her website. And I was asking her if there was any mental health resources. And she said no. And I came up with this idea that oh, since so many parents, especially here in California, are exiting the public school and going off on their own, that they're going to need some support to navigate the mental health system So since they won't have access to school social workers or other people at the school. So I decided to build this guide to support parents through the mental health system. That was how I originally came up with the idea. And as I was doing it, or really before, I had recognized that there were, are a lot of holes in our mental health system. And unfortunately, there are some unskilled therapists out there or some therapists that are maybe pushing their own agendas or pressing their own values on, other, on families that don't match the values of families. 
So I wanted to write something to help families recognize that they need a therapist that's going to work together with them and their values and for them to be able to challenge therapists or find the right therapist for them. That's really the goal. Help them find the right therapist and the right treatment. What are some of the things that you're starting to see or hear about that um, caused you to feel concerned that, you know, let's say for parents who are in the public school system, that they can't necessarily just trust yeah. the school social worker is going to help them or that whoever their doctor, their pediatrician might refer them to is going to be a good support. What made you realize that parents need help discerning practitioners who are going to be supportive of their kids' mental health versus, I mean, what are the problems mm-hmm. with just any practitioner? Well, there, I think there are lots of problems. I think the biggest one or the most glaring one is one that you and I talk about a lot, which is the gender ideology that's being pushed on children and families and that how they've been threatened by saying that they, their child will die by suicide if they don't follow through with affirmation therapy. That's maybe the biggest, most glaring one. Um, but there's plenty of other issues that I saw where I noticed that therapists were very much enabling a victim mentality, which was really disturbing, and not challenging kids to be the best they can and take some personal responsibility in their lives. Um, I noticed there was discrimination against kids who don't f- fit the mold of what who is supposed to be on this oppression hierarchy. So white boys especially, I think, are often not heard properly by therapists. Um, so I just I just saw so many different holes. The biggest thing I saw was just how parents were being shut out with children. That's my focus. So I really saw how therapists were shutting parents out from the treatment and not involving them and saying, oh no, we need to have privacy to, for me to establish trust with your child. And then the therapist would essentially turn their child against their families. And that to me was the most concerning. So I wanted parents to know and be empowered to know that they should be involved in the treatment so that they know that what's up. <laughs> so. Okay, so um, the suicide threats, let's talk about that. Yeah. Why is it so dangerous for a therapist to tell a parent, if you don't affirm, your kid will commit suicide? And is there actually a risk there that people like you and I should be taking more seriously? Well. I, this whole thing is a lie. It's a conflated lie. And what they've done is they've taken, we're talking about kids who have transgender identities, often have some other comorbid issue, which can lead to suicidal thoughts. So they take that, and usually the child is vulnerable. Possibly they are vulnerable of of suicidal thoughts or suicidal behaviors. But there's been no proof, there is no proof, that affirming a child's gender identity is going to change that. What we do know is treating the child for whatever the thing is that's maybe the root cause of their suicide is how we're going to treat this child. So if we're not treating the root causes and we're just focusing on gender, to me, that's dangerous. So that, and then just simply threatening a parent, threatening anybody to do something by suicide is paradoxical. Paradoxical. Did I say that right? Where I mean, that's what we're used to, what 
my profession in the past used to train other our clients not to do that. If you have a friend or a boyfriend that you don't want to leave you, and we, I mean, I think you and I have both have known people like this where they'll say, I'm going to kill myself if you dump me, right? That's, I feel like that's the same thing the therapists are doing here. They're making suicide threats to get what they want or maybe what they think is right. You know, I, it depends on the situation. But either way, making a threat of suicide to get someone to do something is a very unhealthy thing. It's, they're modeling exactly what we're supposed to be helping people not to do. So, yeah. Right. And let's clear up one thing for our audience. I mean, as mental health professionals, you and I definitely take suicide threats Very seriously. seriously. And we're also in the best position to do a thorough assessment of, you know, what is the nature of the suicidal ideation? Um, To what degree is there any kind of plan, any kind of access to means, Mm -hmm. any kind of um, intention of following through on that plan? What are the um, coping tools and the risk factors? And what kind of strengths and supports and safety nets can be provided in the environment, right? This has always been a part of our Very job description. Um, and so, you know, for me personally, when I hear people whose, whose job it has not been for the last <laughs> 10 years to assess and treat suicide, um, suicide risk, when I see people kind of, like you're saying, conflating mm-hmm. anything about suicide, it really gets under my skin. Um, you know, there is a difference, for instance, between suicidal ideation exactly. and suicidal behavior. Exactly. Um, there's also, like you say, we need to rule out comorbidities. And I think also taking into account the role of the social environment is super mm-hmm. important. And for kids these days, the so- social environment means the online yes. environment. So. It concerns me that um, therapists often aren't looking into where the kids originally got these ideas. They're kind of taking at face value that this is how the kid really feels rather than considering the online discourse in the forums that these kids are in where they're explicitly told Mm -hmm. that they can and should use threats of suicide to get this gender-affirming care that they're being, you know, the online environment is cultivating them to to want. Um, so I think, you know, a therapist should really take all that into account. Another problem I see with the suicide narrative is that these kids are very vulnerable mm-hmm. and impressionable. And I've heard of stories where the therapist actually says this to the parent right in front yeah, of Yeah, it's the giving them ideas. It's feeding it into them and making them feel like and- maybe I should do it or I should start thinking about this. Or maybe I'm really that yeah. Maybe if... Maybe I can't, you know, and and we've never suggested to anybody else under any other circumstances that if they can't get what they want, that that, that is where they should go with this, right? I've always felt like as a therapist, you know, I can't control what's going to happen in my clients' lives. I can't predict their future, but I do want to help them instill hope that even if their boss remains a jerk and their spouse leaves them and they get into a car accident and even if mm-hmm. any of these things happen that they're going to be able to pull through. And even if I personally hold the opinion that it's massively unfair, yeah, then, you know, I'm still not going to say that's so unfair. You're going yeah, to I know. Yourself, it's it's know. really wild what's happened. I, I mean, and, and just back to mm-hmm. what you were saying and, and to tie it in, this, I actually wrote an entire lesson 
on suicide prevention and risk assessment for parents to know if they have a child who is talking about suicidal thoughts, how to assess for risk and what and and when you do call for help, what to expect and what not to expect. And I, That's yeah, really so I, I wrote an entire thing. This this is and was my area of expertise. I was working for several years in schools, and I was the lead site director of counseling at Gunn High School in Palo Alto during a suicide cluster, which was pretty high profile. It was on the cover of Atlantic Magazine that year, in fact. And I was the one that the school went to for every single child that needed assessment. So literally every day I was doing assessments. Sometimes it was a child looking for attention. Sometimes it was a child kind of in between trying to figure out how much extra supports we needed for that child. And sometimes it was a child we needed to send to the hospital that day and give them 24-hour supervision. So there was all situations. And I, I really, of, even of, of therapists, this is something that I have a lot of experience in. So it, the fact that this has been toyed around really gets under my skin. Yeah, same here. So I, I'm imagining you've been in this position before, or at least something very similar to it. What do you say to a, a parent who comes to you saying, I took my kid to see their therapist and the therapist said this right in front of my kid. They said that if I don't affirm the new identity, the name, the pronouns, and the medical procedures, um, that my kid is going to kill yeah. herself or himself. What do you say to a parent? Well, I mean, my first gut reaction is just find a new therapist. But it depends, of course. If there really is an alliance and they do trust this person and maybe that this is something that could be worked out, it's possible. Um, but I, I, my first question would be, one, I would, I would have a one-on-one -on -one with this therapist about talking about these issues in front of the child and how this is harmful. And then I would one-on-one uh, -on -one talk to the therapist and ask them some direct questions about why they, where they got this information. Specifically, what data are they citing? And challenge them a little bit because they've been taught to parrot this. Um, I think a lot of therapists have good intentions because they're just trained to say this and they believe this is the right thing. So maybe challenge them and their thoughts a little bit and ask them where they're getting this information. And then challenge them a little more about how this is unhealthy for a child to hear this. And um, yeah, there's just, it's, it's, I, I, but really my first reaction is probably find a new therapist. And, and luckily there are some that won't do this anymore. I, I think it was harder before, but it's been easier to find. There are more resources popping up where more therapists are coming out that don't believe in saying this to treat a child. So now let's move on to some of the other situations you described that um, helped you see a need for this resource you created. You talked about um, the idea that therapists are sort of pushing a victim yeah. mentality. So let me um, let me straw man you a little bit. Okay. <laughs> let's play devil's right. advocate. So I can imagine. Uh, you know, I I don't think any of the people who mob me on the internet actually listen to what mm -hmm. I have to say. I don't think they have the patience for that. I don't think they really want to understand my thought process in depth. But, you know, just imagining that one of these people who can't stand me is actually listening to this okay. episode. Um, and they're saying, how dare you victim blame? Yeah. Right? So they're hearing when we talk about the victim mentality. They're hearing that as that you're gaslighting and dismissing 
the lived experience of people mm. with trauma. Right. What's your response to that? How how do we how do we find a balanced perspective in which we can simultaneously maybe I'm starting to answer the question, <laughs> you know, acknowledge real yeah. victimization where it does occur, but not fall prey to the unhealthy aspects of the victim mentality. And where does that line fall, in your opinion? Another lesson I wrote in my truthful therapist. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, it's a called victim mentality and how to fight it. So yeah, so there's a difference between we are victims of things. When we when I'm saying fighting victim mentality, I'm not saying that I'm discounting um, or not acknowledging or any of that of someone who's been through something terrible. That's not, that's not what this is about. This is about helping someone move, like carry on with their life in a healthier way, find the coping skills and find the strength. And I mean, what we used to do is say someone becomes a survivor of a thing, right? I mean, that used to be the language we used to use and we're not even using that language. I used to think that was cheesy and over the top, but now I kind of wish they did that a little more. Um, but it, this is about recognizing and working through a, a real situation that you might really ha ha have been a victim, perhaps maybe of domestic violence or of being in a part with a partner that's incorrect, or maybe you really were a victim of something social, like you were a victim of racism. But the difference is, is that you don't walk around with that victim mentality and project it onto everything where then it gets in your way of finding situations where you wouldn't be a victim. And when someone has trauma, they, they often project things on. And I think it's our jobs as therapists to help somebody be able to decipher the difference for when they need to be defensive so that they don't become a victim again. And when they can actually be open to someone who'll be uh, their help or just uh, make a positive connection or just thrive in life in some shape or form. So when we're constantly waiting to be victimized, or we believe every situation is a result of something because of the color of your skin or because of their, your gender or because of your who you identify as, then you're going to find those situations and everything and you're not going to be a happy person and you're going to create more problems in your life. So I think that this victim mentality is getting the way of a lot of people now because they're being taught to have it because it kind of gives them something. It gives people something and they get points for it, especially to children, especially to teenagers. So. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro cover by 8sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. 
Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. I hear you making a distinction between, I guess the way I like to think of it is like victim as a role and victim as an identity. So victim, a role is relational. Like my role toward you is that we're colleagues. My role toward my partner is that we're partners, you know. We have all these different roles, um, you know, and... The other day, I accidentally played a role of, you know, in someone else's world, I was a terrible driver <laughs> because I, I heard a cyclist shout at me. Now, I don't think I I don't think I was driving too close to him, but he shouted at me. And so in his world, I played the role of that terrible driver who's antagonistic to cyclists. Right. I can't control that. But we we play different roles, uh, some of which we, you know, have more control over than others, some of which we choose more consciously than others. Um, but those roles don't define us as a person, whereas an identity yeah. is, you know, how I think of myself all mm-hmm. the time, how I see myself in every situation. And so I hear you sort of making this distinction that you might have been victimized in one or more, more roles, right? There might have been people who play the role of aggressor and, you know, toward you. And maybe some of those people are actually just genuinely bad people and that's their identity, right? But in any case, you have been victimized. That's a role you've been in, but it's not your mm-hmm. identity. And you don't have to live your life that way. In fact, you know, the longer you spend living your life that way, the more you're letting them yeah. win, the more you're letting that trauma take over your life. And I, I want to run this by you because it's it's something I think about often, but I don't often articulate it to other therapists. So I want to okay. know your thoughts. So it's my opinion, just from observing humans in the healing process, that there's an important role that it plays to grapple with our victimization. Yeah. Like I I so let me give an example. Um I was watching detransitioner videos the other day like I do cuz I obsessively study the experiences of detransitioners so that means a lot of time on YouTube listening to detransitioner stories. Um and there is this one I came across that was through a channel I'm not familiar with, but it seemed like a pop culture media outlet. Okay. Um, and they featured this detransitioner who I then followed to her own channel. Um, but it was maybe like a six or eight minute segment. And I felt like she was saying things that we're going to hear a lot more of in the coming decade as part of how mass media tries to walk it back. Um, because she was basically just framing detransition as another step in her gender journey and that she didn't regret any of it. And then I go to her channel and I'm watching about how she's, you know, working incredibly hard to save up money for laser hair removal and the work that she's done looking into, you know, breast reconstruction. And, you know, and I'm thinking, I- I'm... I'm just left wondering, 
if this woman has actually gotten in touch with her feelings about this mm. yet. You know, if she's saying like, because I heard her saying things like, I relate to trans men, I relate to cis women, I relate to non-binary people. Like nothing that she said remotely questioned herself. any gender ideology. Oh, saying, it seems like she's not connecting to herself. She's connecting to these groups. I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting observation, right? There was there was just nothing in anything that she said that expressed some of the other things I hear most of the detransitioners I follow saying, like, I was wronged. I was misdiagnosed. Yeah. I was medically abused. I was misled. I was in a cult. I have permanently lost bodily mm -hmm. functions. I'm traumatized by this. I didn't hear any of that from her. It was just, this is the next stage in my gender journey. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, sometimes I like the way I look, sometimes I don't. And I was just kind of grappling with this thinking, I, you know, I don't want to speak for anyone else or pretend that it's my place to know what her life is like. But at the same time, I was thinking, I think she's, she is a victim and has not yeah. recognized that yet. And, and it's my observation, you know, working with people who have been all kinds of different victims, you know, of rape and assault and, you know, everything, um, that there's an important phase mm -hmm. of like, I was a victim, I was misled, I was abused, I was helpless, I was deceived, I was naive, I was taken advantage of, I was powerless, I was harmed, I was hurt, I was robbed from. You know, maybe not all of those statements apply, um, but whatever combination of them do apply, that you, you have to kind of go through yeah. that and go through the grieving process of feeling your anger and and shame and then, you know, going through a phase of externalizing that shame because a lot of people blame themselves for what happened and, that you know, they need to go through a phase of, wait a minute, that wasn't my fault. You know, I was blaming myself at 14 yeah. for being groomed by a 31-year-old. No, it was right. his fault, you know? Like, there's there's a necessary stage in the healing process of owning that, yeah, I was a victim and there what maybe there was nothing I could have done. Right. Um, and and that I think it's important to get in touch with those feelings. And then the healing process mm -hmm. takes place from there. And then you get to a point where you're you're at least somewhat healed and you don't let that victimization define you, but you're also not carrying out the patterns of, you know, internalizing the shame for someone else's misbehavior or anything like that. Then you can live an empowered life. And so it's my opinion. <laughs> That like we have to actually go through a stage yeah. and then heal that stage. And that if we don't go through that stage of recognizing we are a victim, then there's something that's not not able to happen in the healing mm -hmm. process. I um, agree. What are your I thoughts? I agree on with that? you. Yeah. Okay. I don't know this individual. I don't even see the video to even superficially know them. But it sounds like just from your description here, is that maybe it's too painful to acknowledge they were victimized and they, they want to skip that part. They don't, because all that stuff, I, I mean, again, I can't even imagine the pain to recognize that you've been wronged in this way or been fooled or tricked or by adults and, and professionals that you trusted a whole system, your whole, your whole world, every, everything between people you love and then just people that you think are going to take care of you. 
that's a really scary notion, right? So maybe that's just, that was skipped over for that reason. Um, And and maybe they also don't want to alienate certain people, especially if you're doing this publicly. Yeah. They're they're still trying to maybe maybe bridge that gap between the people who are still trans and, you know, who might be trying to decide whether they'd made the right choice and the people that have detransitioned. I think it's a tough position to be in. So maybe if we talk to this person one-on-one privately, they might have a different tune, right? Who, who knows? Listen. So, but I agree with you. I do think that we need to acknowledge that we've been hurt when we've been hurt. It's, it's just not staying in that, but you, but you have to. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll just share, not about detransitioning, but I went through a really terrible medical situation where I, I, I went through a year and a half of doctors from all different medical systems that didn't listen to me or believe me when I was in severe pain to the point where I was completely, completely dysfunctional. I couldn't even do my ADLs. I couldn't brush my teeth or tie my shoes without struggling. And then none of the doctors believed me. So I got to a point where I didn't trust any doctor and I was a victim, right? But I eventually did find a doctor that, that specialized in the rare condition that I figured out that I had. So I did find a doctor that I trusted and I did find one a doc a surgeon to help me get this surgery that's specialized. She's only like one of six of the entire world that can really do this properly. So I have so much gratitude towards these certain doctors, but then I still have all this, I do still have this anger towards other doctors. So do I throw out all the doctors? I can't do that. But I had but I did have to acknowledge that I was hurt by the medical system. And I do have, there's a piece of me that is going to not trust anybody that quickly. So that that's still in there. Um, so, yeah. Is that, do you think that's part of the reason? I mean, what, what you went through with the medical system, is that part of the reason that, you know, here a few years later in life, you decided that you were going to help people who are struggling through the mental right. health system to figure out who they can I think trust. it is connected because I went, I was sort of naive about things, thought doctors, not a hundred percent. We all know doctors are fallible, but I didn't realize to the degree of how much they really don't listen to you as an individual. And they go by what's kind of the mass or the collective thoughts of how to handle a thing. Um, So I I did learn that specifically with women who have chronic pain or something and something that's not obvious, it doesn't show up on a scan that doctors tend to dismiss women who have pain that doesn't show up in an image easily. And so I've learned that. So that was a lesson I learned. And yeah, so maybe that does connect with, for people, I want them to be able to, and I knew inside, there were, I mean, I didn't, I knew strongly that there was something really wrong and it wasn't in my head and it wasn't something I needed to just do CBT about and, you know, not, and just, and they kept trying to medicate me on things that didn't help me. And so I, I, I knew there was something wrong, but all the experts were telling me otherwise. So I guess this does really, that is really, this is why I like being interviewed by a therapist because <laughs> I think that's true because I basically learned you, you have to not trust the experts. I mean, you have, there are experts that are going to be able to help you and you need to do the diligence to find those experts. And that's really what my program is about. So I don't want everyone to throw the baby out with the bathwater because there are good therapists, but there are a lot of people that aren't going to do the right thing. So I wanted to empower people to have the right information so that they can find the right thing to get that help. And it took me a while physically for me to figure out what went wrong. So it took me a year and a half to get even a diagnosis and then another full year to finally find the surgeon. Um, so yeah, maybe within the mental health field, I want to help people learn to 
be a little skeptical with professionals, but also recognize that there are good ones and there are people that can help you. Because I think a lot of people now are just saying, oh, screw all the therapists. They're all batshit crazy. (laughs) And that's, I mean, maybe true for some, but it's really not true for all of them. And we need mental health care, especially now after all the lockdowns and everything we've all been through and how much this online stuff is hurting people and how people are just losing connections with each other and with their own bodies. So we, we need that. So I'm trying to figure out how I can play my part so to help people find the right therapist and then also um, maybe empower other therapists to step up that are not buying into some of the things that I think are harmful. So, yeah, it's an interesting connection. Thank you for making that for me. <laughs> One more issue that you named at the beginning was discrimination against, I mean, it's hard to say this, it's hard to believe this, but discrimination against therapy patients by therapists based on their demographics. So you gave the example of, you know, like a white boy who, you know, in the social justice narrative is like the most privileged. So, and then this is disturbing because therapy is supposed to be a place where, you know, there's an unconditional Mm -hmm. positive regard and respect for that person's own experience of the world. Um, But what kinds of things were you hearing or picking up on that made you feel concerned about that? Is now toxic or just who they are is is toxic because masculinity is toxic. So they're, they're fighting who they are and they're not allowed to be themselves, even if they're not. And we're talking about just not, not when we're, we're, ta- we're not talking about rape culture, these terrible things. We're talking about just every day, just boys being boys. I don't know how else to put it. Um, and so they're being stifled as people. And, and we, we need boys to be boys. We need people to be themselves. And just because you don't like it in, in, your, in your narrative, I, I, I think that's terrible. I just think that people should be allowed to be who they are and not stifle it. So I think what's happening is boys, especially now they're, they're repressing who they are. They're scared to show who they are. And they're, and I think that lends itself to more mental health issues and more isolation and, and it's upsetting and scary to watch. So. Well, you're talking generally about a trend that you've been on both sides of with regard to people losing trust in our institutions. Um, you know, I see people losing trust in academic institutions. I recently did an interview with um, Deb Philman on that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the order that these episodes are going to air in, but I got to know her personally and Moms for Liberty. She's wonderful. I really connected with her, her daughter, actually. We both like Stranger Things and we sat together during her workshop, me and her daughter. It was really fun. You know, I didn't know that that summit was happening until I started seeing all these pictures of all my different Twitter (laughs) friends hanging out in person together. I was like, y'all are having a party. I didn't get invited. I was having FOMO. Next time all my gender critical friends on Twitter are getting together somewhere in the United States, please let me know. Um, Well, there's a rally coming up actually in Anaheim, California. A lot of us are going to. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. You couldn't pay me. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay. But um, I mean, there's a loss of trust in the academic institutions. There's a loss of trust in the mm-hmm. medical system and a loss of trust in the mental health care system. And I don't think we could drive the point home enough what the consequences of this are going to be. I mean, it's grim. When people lose trust in yeah. therapists and therefore do not seek therapy when they need it, let's look at 
I mean, we're talking more suicides. We're talking more divorces, more addictions. You know, we're talking more abuse, Mm -hmm. more intergenerational trauma being passed down. Definitely. We're talking people losing their jobs because of their symptoms of their mental illness that they can't get under control or because of conflict in the workplace. Like the consequences of this are mm-hmm. dire. And it it's really disturbing to me that so many therapists are refusing to listen to people who have been harmed by affirmation. Yeah. Um, you know, I recently, um, there's a, a Twitter account called Therapists Connect. It's at therapists underscore C. Oh. And they're designed to, um, like, their promise is that if you tweet anything that's meant for other therapists, just add the hashtag Therapist Connect and they will retweet it for you to amplify it to the therapist community on Twitter. Well, um, they had retweeted a very woke virtue signaling therapist post from someone that was like, just, I mean, the only value in the post, there, there was no value as I saw it, but the whole point of the post was just to shame people for not being more aware of yeah. social justice as this person saw it. And Therapist Connect retweeted that. Um, but I retweeted something from a detransitioner. I don't remember what it was. It was just an expression of pain and mistreatment. And I retweeted, when will therapists listen? Hashtag Therapist mm, Connect. How'd that go? And then, uh, so they blocked oh me. Oh my gosh. And I'm thinking... I mean, there might have been a follow-up to that where I posted, like, isn't it interesting that Therapist Connect would share this post but not this one? Um, Because I had screenshotted the one, the really woke virtue signaling one, and I posted it to my audience. Hey, like, what do you guys think when you see a therapist posting this type of stuff? And it was like 50 reactions from all different kinds of people all saying, like, I wouldn't trust this person for this reason or for that reason, you know, so... Uh, basically this account blocked me and that's not the first time something mm-hmm. like that has happened. You know, I've been kicked out of Facebook groups, not even for anything I said in the group, but for things I said outside wow. of the group. Um, and I, I'm just thinking like, aren't we supposed to know about mental health issues and trauma? And I mean, you, you don't see a, a, a more dangerous combination yeah. of mental health issues and trauma in any population as you do with detransitioners, they are, they've been yeah. through it. This is like a whole new picture of complex PTSD. And, um, you know, I see a lot of suicide risk mm-hmm. factors. And like the fact that therapists are refusing to listen to each other when a therapist is saying, hey, there's like a new emerging population that's at high risk of suicide and has severe complex trauma. Like maybe we should try to help them. And then just blocking each other and kicking each other out of groups. It's like, I, I don't think these people realize that there's blood on no. their hands. You know, they, they turn to people like you and me and they say there's blood on our hands because of those made up suicide yeah. statistics as if it's people, you know, as if people are actually killing themselves because you and I are out here having this right. conversation, which is just yeah. not true. But um, it just really worries me, the loss of trust in institutions. And I and I get it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of mistrust in these institutions as well. I have a lot of mistrust in my colleagues. Um, so I think it's really great the work that you're doing because you're saying, hey, yes, I get it. You have every reason to mistrust these institutions, but you still need the help that they're designed to provide. So let's help yeah. you find the good ones. I think that's that's wonderful. So what are some of the kind of um, 
core themes or principles that you try to get across to your parents in this guide? So I'm going to answer that, but I just thought of something I wanted to say. One of the side effects of what mm -hmm. I've done, I, I have to say, and I want to say this to the audience in general, is a lot of therapists that are like-minded, like you and I, have come forward. So, and there are, they're out there. Uh, they've, they've sent me a lot of messages seeking support, seeking a community. They want, they are either in grad school trying to find more training that doesn't have social justice as the forefront of their training. And so there are a lot of therapists out there that don't want to do this and want to do the ethical thing and they don't want to dismiss detransitioners or, or reinforce victim mentality and these things. So I just wanted to say that, that they're out there and I think that they're going to get stronger and they're going to grow because they're, they're leaders like us and there's more, there's, there's more of us out there and a lot of them have been silenced. They're in hiding, but they're out there. So don't think they're not there. Let me pause there to agree with you because I also get those messages yeah. every week. And, you know, for people who are listening, I, a lot of our listeners are in that mm -hmm. group, um, in that audience, you know, graduate students, trainees, therapists early in their career, people who dropped out of grad school because they couldn't handle the approach, um, who are concerned about this issue. So for people who are looking for those groups, let's just name a few of them. So there's critical therapy mm -hmm. antidote, thoughtful therapists, careful clinicians. Um, I am, I don't call myself liberal or conservative. I don't vote Democrat or Republican at this point, but there is a website called conservativetherapist.com. That's also a good fit for some people. Um, you know, there are other people who are guests on my podcast, like Andrew Hartz and Marcus Evans. Um, people like you and me. Uh, there's a Gender Exploratory Therapy Association. Um, can you think of well, any I, other I've been talking a little bit with fair.org, and they're trying to gather people more middle of the road, you know, to have, have some flexibility in their political views and just open to different ideas. And we're actually building, I just connected with somebody there, and we're building a therapist network, a mental health network for professionals there too. So that's another oh, nice. one. I didn't yeah, even know that. Of course, you're going to invite I'm gonna, me. Right? I was going to tell you about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. And for, for people who don't know, FAIR.org is the Foundation Against Intolerance and yeah. Racism. Yeah. So there's them too. And I think there's there's more emerging. And yeah, I'm trying to figure out how we can all work together, every all of us. Uh, I think it's going to happen. Yeah. And I have my private Discord server. I have like, there's like 12 different ways people contact me. I try to funnel it all through email. But at least with my Discord server, the point is that if you contact me for any reason, and you're like, I love your podcast and I'm looking for like-minded people, if that's the gist of the message, I'll be like, great, here's an invite yeah. to my Discord server. Um, it's great. Because it, it's good to just be able to send somewhere, send people somewhere with like-minded people. Um, but it would be better if it was all just... There are a lot place. of portals. So we're trying to figure, you know, it's like, how do we get us all together? It's, it is a little splintered. And, and that's what happens because unfortunately we are censored. And, and there are a lot of people that are still scared rightfully so, of cancel culture. So there's a lot of that. So that's why it makes it challenging. Yeah, but I think we can make a case that, you know, I don't think anybody has a right to try to take away what we're doing because there is a responsibility mm -hmm. amongst the mental health professional community to serve the whole population. Yeah. You know, we need to divide and conquer. We need to make sure that we have therapists for this issue and therapists for that issue. And right now, things are in a rough spot because there are not enough therapists for parents who who are concerned about their kids wanting to, you know, permanently yeah. damage their fertility. There aren't enough therapists for that. You know, there aren't enough therapists for people who are, you know, white racism survivors or conservatives or Christians. Right, for the that religious piece I mean, it gets really shut out. And um, 
I'm, I'm personally not even that religious myself, but I really value people's religious beliefs and I, I respect it. And I think it should be incorporated in mm-hmm. therapy, especially if it's important to that person. And a lot of therapists now mm-hmm. are either ignoring it or discrediting that. Um, and some people yeah. do need, uh, w- would really connect with a therapist who does share their faith or f- you know, has a strong connection to their faith. So there, I think there's a niche for mm-hmm. that too. So, and you know, um, there's a Twitter mutual of mine. Um, I think their handle is like something like Certified ADA Advocate, who's very familiar with the Americans with Disabilities mm-hmm. Act, and um, and we had talked about this, and you know, people who have been harmed, people people who are victims of iatrogenic harm at the hands of gender medicine, they you know could be considered covered under the Americans with Disabilities yeah. Act. I mean, they've been disabled. Some they, of they're them, on, right? You know? They have and, a lot of them have physical disabilities. I mean, besides all the emotional trauma, yes. that a lot of them they, have actual disabilities, right? I mean, so uh-huh. as a result yeah, of been, this, they've been given iatrogenic, yeah. you know, clinically induced disabilities. And you know, who is anybody to say that those people shouldn't have access to appropriate services? The thing is that you can't be neutral on this issue because once you actually start mm-hmm. paying attention to this population of people who have been harmed by gender medicine, as soon as you start paying attention to it, you can't, yeah, it's, you just can't be on board with affirmation anymore because you see what exactly, it does Exactly. I know. Once I think, I really think the, I think once people really understand it and they can get past the rainbows and the slogans and decent people know what's really going on, then it's not going to be as popular anymore. But I think, because of the propaganda and the all of the just the, the the positive feelings that are pushed out and the the negative stuff like the things you're trying to say are being censored, then people just aren't aware or they think that's just so rare that it's not important or it shouldn't be talked about because the masses will benefit from this affirmation stuff. But you and I know that's not the case. So I think more the more people learn about it and we are headed in that direction. I just hope it happens more quickly so less people get harmed in the way in the process. So, so I had asked you a while ago. And yeah, I know. I went. I took tangent, it, up. but I want to bring, bring it back to yeah. the question. No, I mean it was an important tangent, but I wanted to make sure to ask you about some mm-hmm. of the core themes of your messages for parents. Who are you? So yeah. Advice? So my biggest message of all is that I would like parents to know that they should be involved if their child lives with them, even if their child doesn't. But if they're if they are referring and working together with their child in therapy, they should be involved in the therapy with their child. So no child therapy is not effective with children when they're done individually and there is no parent involvement. It's it's almost doesn't even work at all. Maybe it would work a little. I I haven't done a research study on this myself, but it's been general common practice throughout the. I mean, I've been in the field now. I graduated NYU in 1999, and the and. All these years, that's been the common practice. You you involve parents because even if you help a child maybe do a coping skill or learn how to work out a feeling or express themselves, if they're going home to a family that they're having difficulties with or communication issues or whatever the thing is, you're not actually you can't help that child because that is their family. So so parents be involved. That's that's number one. And if a, if a therapist is shutting you out from the the process and not telling you what they're doing with their child, like what are the treatment goals and what maybe some of the methodologies you're, they're using, the, just some basic things at least, then that is that is a red flag right there that you need to 
make sure you find someone that will work with you. A therapist should be excited that you're a parent that wants to be involved. And really, the more involved, the better. Obviously, the you know, depending on the age. So if, if it is a teenager, it, maybe it would be once a week or once every two weeks or once a month. But, um, you know, it depends on the case. But, oh, but I really do believe strongly the parent needs to be involved. And I want the parent to know that and to not get intimidated by a therapist to say, no, you can't be involved because this will break our tr- my trust with your child. That, that's, that's scary because what my fear is, and teachers are doing this, and I, they're splitting up families and therapists, especially those that are for the affirmation and the gender specifically, they're turning their children against their families. And that is maybe the most dangerous thing you could do as a therapist. So I really want to make sure that parents are aware of this and they don't let this happen. So that's my main thing. Um, but then I, my whole, my whole guide is to actually give them, give parents some jargon and language and questions to ask and to, to know like what kinds of therapy to specifically ask what kinds of therapy that do you use or if they if the therapist asks that they use cbt for for example like how do you use cbt with with children what are some of the activities that you do right or can you tell me something you've done with my child and how it went um to to, to basically just know what's happening and stay involved so i want to give them that language and arm them with that um, so, yeah, that's my main goal. When, when you're in the role of the therapist and you're working with a kid and the family's not involved, what information are you missing? Yes. And what might, what, in what ways might you be li- misled by only right, asking Yeah, child? excellent question. Because that is, not only is the reason just to involve the parent so the parent knows what's going on, but this it's important for the therapist, for their assessment, to know what's going on with the child, to get to know the parent. I mean, we're all, a lot of the arguments are, well, what about the bad parents, right? Well, the truth is, you even need to work with the bad parents, because that informs you of what this child might be going through. And it gives, it gives you a lot of information. Like, if that, and I mean, I've worked in years, like, not all parents are perfect I've worked with some really challenging parents. I mean, I'm hoping my audience, everyone listening, you're all wonderful parents. I don't want to criticize anybody directly, but you know, I've worked with some difficult parents and it informs me if, if, especially if someone's really hard to talk to on the phone, if they're not listening to me or if they're really critical, then oh, maybe that's some of the reasons this child is manifesting some of their behaviors, right? It just gives me some clues. It's like we're, we as therapists are detectives. And as, par- as part of our detective work is we need to know the environments that our chil- the children are, are living in to be able to learn and understand how to treat this child. So... That, I think it, that's, it gives us a lot of important information. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. 
It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. What about the ethical dilemma, and in some cases maybe legal dilemma, of the fact that each state has age of consent laws for therapy? Um, Like, I believe here in Oregon, the age is 14. and I'm not keeping track of things because I'm not working with adolescents mm-hmm. right now because the issue is so fraught. Um, but, you know, a kid can request therapy and at a certain age doesn't have to have their parents' consent or knowledge. Um, so what, yeah. you know, what about that? Like, let's say, um, you know, a 15-year-old comes to a therapist wanting therapy and says, I don't want you to talk to my parents. They don't know I'm here or... They don't understand mm-hmm. me. Well, here in California, the age is 12. And that law has actually been in since, I believe, 2011. It, Arnold Schwarzenegger was our governor at the time. This was a while ago. And I got to tell you, honestly, as I was naive then, and I, I thought it, was, it would be good for those really extreme situations where there was real abuse or there, the child really needed help and the, the parent wouldn't allow it. Because I was naive and I was a good person and of course I'm helping, right? <laughs> well, now I know that, that unfortunately these laws, there are, there are those handful of situations where it could really help. I, I don't want to deny that. But I think unfortunately these, the, there's always that side effect or the unintended consequence of therapists who think they know better and do things behind the family's back and then turn the child against them. And now, especially with this gender ideology, I didn't see that then back in 2011, 2012, whenever this went through. So um, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I think you've heard my biased opinion is I think parents should be involved heavily. And I don't, I don't think we should be doing therapy. Even, if, even as therapists, if we believe it's the right thing, I still don't think that it's our role to take over the parents' jobs and say, well, just because I think this this will help your child, I'm going to override you, your parent, your parental rights. So I don't believe in that. But I know not everyone agrees with me. So, yeah. You know, teenagers are known for being a bit dramatic mm-hmm. and having hyperbolic ways of expressing themselves. Um, and... I think kids in general pull at our heartstrings. For sure. And I think that combination of, you know, how kids pull at our heartstrings, how teenagers can be dramatic and hyperbolic, how teenagers are, you know, they're exposed to peer culture um, or online culture that increasingly is not driven by their peers, by adults. But, you know, they're they're influencing social factors that give them certain kind of phrases that, you know, unless you're really keeping up on the lingo, 
you might easily make the mistake of thinking that this is the teenager's own thought process yeah. when really it's something they're kind of parroting that they've mm-hmm. heard. Um, and as therapists, you know, one of our one of the aspects of our kind of collective shadows, this doesn't apply equally to all of us, of course, but in general, one of our sort of shadow traits as therapists tends to be having like a right the rescue fantasy i i always have to fight it myself i do yeah yeah Yeah, and i mean so if you take all all of all of those factors combined about our nature and the nature of youth and the nature of the times today i think it's very easy to be misled about what's going on in a kid's life that doesn't mean that the kid is bad or malicious or intentionally deceptive. It just means they're expressing themselves the best way they know how. Um, and we we have to watch out for how, you know, for our countertransference, mm-hmm. the feelings that are being evoked in us and be a little bit skeptical toward mm-hmm. those, you know, be a little bit more analytical. Um, but I think, you know, increasingly I'm seeing evidence from things I'm seeing and hearing that therapists are kind of going the same direction that, that teachers yeah. are going where there's this savior complex that's unexamined right that there's there's kind of very little self-awareness that this is a personal flaw that i have that i need to mm-hmm. watch out for and and so what happens when you don't have a degree of you know s- suspiciousness toward your own savior complex and then and you're also you know you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s you're not keeping up on the lingo you're not you know, spending eight hours a day on Tumblr and TikTok, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So how are you going to know how to interpret what these kids are saying to you? Um, it does, you know, it, it can be a recipe. I've, I've definitely, you know, looking back, worked with adolescents where I thought, wow, home life just sounds yeah. terrible. And then I get to know the parents and I'm like, yeah, this isn't that, that bad. That, <laughs> I mean, there's there's something that we need to help it. them with here, but this is yeah. And I you know. I have to say I I'm proud of myself. I used to work in schools, and I had well, I had to fight that all the time. We I was overseeing a group of basically unlicensed. They call them interns, but they're they're master. They have master's levels, and so I'm proud that we we saw some kids that would say to us, I can't tell my parents if I, if I tell them they, they'll disown me or they'll do something. Um, sometimes it was cultural. This was in Palo Alto. There were a lot of Chinese families where therapy wasn't as culturally accepted. And we had this urge to just want to work with this kid. But I'd always tell the intern that was working with the child, we've got to work on getting this kid, get permission from the parents. And, and we usually did. We we got them almost every time. I mean, maybe I could think of maybe three times in, in five years that we didn't involve the parent, and it was it was very very rare. And we worked hard to get parents' permission, and exactly the way you just said, usually the parent was okay with it. Sometimes they needed a little convincing, but most of the time they were okay with it, and usually they appreciated it once we got them involved. And also, just like we said earlier, if we don't involve the parents, we're really not able to help this kid. Especially if the kid is saying the problems are at home, how are we supposed to help the child? So, well, I think a lot of adolescents and adults, for that matter, have this kind of misconception that therapy is just a place to vent, and that mm-hmm. that is going to make you feel better, right? And so, the expectation that teens come to therapy with is like, 
this is just a nice person who's not my therapist, who's not going to tell my therapist what I say, or I'm sorry, a nice person who's not my parents, who's not going to tell my parents what I say, who I can just vent at and they're going to sympathize with me and I'll get some validation from my perspective. That's definitely part of what we do, you know, in some search situations more than others. Um, but it's really only a starting point for mm-hmm. our job, you know, giving giving people space to vet and feel heard and feel validated for their emotions and their struggles is a starting point. Um, but, you know, I've, I found myself saying this to clients, like, I, I, I don't want a life for you that sucks, you know, every hour of the week except the hour you spend with me. But what kind of life yeah. is that? You know, I don't want you this this to be the one place where you get your emotional needs met. My job is to help your life get better when you're not here exactly. as well. Um, yeah, it's just we're and we're temporary. There are families are there a lot, you know, that that you can't they can't get rid of their families. Most can't. <laughs> um, maybe you should explain to people what countertransference is. This has come up in actually a few of my conversations oh. for, for those who aren't therapists. I, th- I think it's an yeah, important sure. concept because so, a lot of people ask me and they probably ask you the same thing. Like, why are therapists doing this? What's, what is this? And I think a lot of it is the countertransference like you explained. But maybe you can explain it a little better. Yeah. So countertransference is it's an old term that comes from psychoanalytic, mm-hmm. you know, classic psychotherapy. Um, so most people are more familiar with the concept of transference. And if that's not something you've heard of, then you're, you at least might have kind of a layperson's grasp of the sense that if you go to therapy, you're going to have feelings toward your therapist, right? Um, Those feelings could be based on things that are happening in real time, but they probably also at least are mapping in your mind to other experiences you've had with other people. You know, does the therapist remind you of one of Mm -hmm. your parents, siblings, teachers, you know, anyone who is influential in your life? And what are the assumptions that you kind of automatically have, consciously or not, of what your therapist is thinking and feeling Mm -hmm. toward you? Um, You know, are you experiencing them as cold, rejecting, and judgmental? If so, I mean, it's possible that that, that that's how they are, right? But it's also possible that that's how your father was, right? So um, there's there's just a lot going on uh, in the therapy session between client and therapist and... um, you know, psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, transference-focused psychotherapy, relational psychotherapy, all um, find value in exploring yes. Um and, and, you know, therapy that takes into account attachment. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very important for good therapy that the therapist be alert to possible transference mm-hmm. issues. You know, this is, you know, I've said this in another episode recently that I always appreciate it when my clients have you know, both the insight and the courage to bring their transference issues yeah. to me, you know, to say things like, I was worried you were going to be disappointed that I didn't follow up on that thing we talked mm-hmm. about last week, or you're probably sick of hearing me talking or, you know, whatever assumptions they have about how I'm feeling toward them. I'm like, great that you brought that up. Let's examine that, you know, and then that's an, an opportunity for me to say something like, you know, it seems like you um, are assuming that I'm going to react to this in a certain way that kind of reminds me of how your mother reacted yeah, to things growing up. Exactly. Right. Uh, so, so it's it's rich with opportunities to pay attention to transference. Now, countertransference is the therapist's feelings toward the client, and again, that could be based on what's happening in real time, interpersonal, you know, chemistry, 
but also um who does this client remind you of what feelings do they mm-hmm. evoke in you you know they could even remind you of a part of yourself mm-hmm. that's you know a younger common. part of you right? very common yeah yeah right and and i think the things that especially and i would say this for therapists and for parents the things that you feel the most impatient about in your kids mm-hmm. or your patients respectively are usually like wow i have very little tolerance for dealing with sadness am i repressing my own yeah. sadness i'm having a really hard time extending my compassion and patience toward my child when they're sad or toward my patient when they're sad is that because i can't stand something in me that mm-hmm. is sad right so um you know, it's important that we pay attention to our countertransference or, um, you know, whatever it is that the client's evoking in us. That can be a source of information about them. It can be a source of information about us. It can point us towards something that's valuable towards the therapeutic alliance. Mm-hmm. You know, if let's say I remind a client of her best friend. Well, you know what? That's like maybe a beneficial transference that we can work with. Um, you know, it's not always appropriate to challenge transference. Um, there's also times like, um, you know, I've had, I remember a client who's a cat person just assuming that I had cats. <laughs> I've, I've had clients who are Christian assuming I'm Christian, yeah. you know, because they like me and they project, they have, yeah. And so, you know, and I'm not going to stop in that moment and be like, who told you I had a cat? I don't have a cat. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to stop and do that because it's in the middle of something else. And I'm just interpreting it as information in that moment of like this client sees me as similar to them as having values in common with them. And that's helping them feel like they can trust me. You know, that's not necessarily always something that you need to challenge. It's just information. Right. But countertransference, um, you know, again, we might have a fondness for a patient. You know, I have clients I think are funny or brilliant or, you know, very likable characters in any number of ways. Um, and again, that's not always bad, but it could raise an issue. Like, let's say I, you know, have a client who's genuinely funny and I laugh at them a lot of the time, but also, you know, maybe part of their kind of complex is that that's how they learned how to be important Mm -hmm. to people, you know, is to always be the funny one. If you can make people laugh, keep things light and positive, maybe mom and dad won't divorce. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) So if that's that person's complex then maybe I just need to be aware that when I'm laughing at their jokes that I'm kind of reinforcing that this is the value that you bring to people. So it's just important to have a little bit of skepticism toward the process and and be analytical and curious about it. Um, So, you know, countertransference, I think right now we're living in an age where um, countertransference issues are pretty rife in the field. So um, there's a news piece about uh, a therapist, uh, like a doctoral level um, therapist, I believe she was of Indian American descent, who openly hated white wow. people and like spoke yeah, about I think it I saw publicly. that. Yeah, and, it was terrible. Right, her practice is shut down, by the way, but she's doing some kind of like coaching or something like that. That's good. Um, See, that's not cancel culture. That's just ethics. That's different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's like. If you, if you, uh, yeah, anyway, I'm like, so, um, you know, countertransference issues that I think therapists need to watch out for. So anyone with a social justice mm-hmm. lens, you have to look at what assumptions you're making about 
this filter of privilege yeah. and oppression, right? Like if you, you know, regardless of whether you're white or non-white or whatever, like if you hold a negative view of white people and you'll have a belief system that says it's okay to judge people based on their mm -hmm. demographics, it's okay to have antagonism based on demographics as long as you've chosen the right demographics yeah. to be antagonistic yeah. toward. Like if that's your worldview, I personally don't think you ought to be practicing. I agree. Um, because I don't think that's ethical. Um, you know, same thing, like if if you hate any group of people based on any immutable characteristics, I don't think you ought to be practicing. Um, and, you know, but of course there's plenty of people who don't hate people based on their demographics, but do have their own issues. You know, right. there are many therapists, some of whom operate from a feminist lens who themselves are like rape or incest survivors or been assaulted by men or sexually harassed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they might be perfectly good therapists for some clients, maybe for, you know, female clients more than male clients. But also, you know, that again raises a countertransference issue mm -hmm. that let's say, you know, let's say the therapist herself was a victim of a really violent rape and has a client come to her who's grappling with maybe a sexual consent scenario that was along different yeah. lines. And maybe what the client actually needs help sorting out isn't that she was wronged. Maybe what she needs help sorting out in this particular situation that she went through is that she lost trust in herself mm -hmm. to speak up about what she needed. It wasn't that a crime had been committed. It was that there's a broken trust in herself or some shame there, right? And if the therapist lens is strongly antagonistic toward men and protective of rape survivors, then she's going to go in the mm -hmm. direction of, no, we need we need to talk about how you were wronged. We need to talk about how that person's the bad guy. And maybe that's just not what this person needs in order for her to heal. Maybe this is about reclaiming self-trust and bodily autonomy, right? So, um, you know, even when our countertransference is positive, even when we have a lot of sympathy for someone, or a lot of liking for our client, you know, that too can skew our perception of what it is that they actually need. And I think yeah. the, you know, the victim role stuff we were talking about earlier, I do think um, is, is highly I think there's this tension now because of this cultural push on collectivism. And it's, it's this weird tension because we as therapists, we're supposed to be working with someone as an individual Maybe we're doing family therapy, but it's still that specific family. So we shouldn't be looking at it from this collectivism view in terms of an entire race or an entire gender or entire group. You should be looking at these, your clients for their individual needs. And I think there's this tension now between that, between this ideology of we have to look at what's best for the, the greater good, which I think with the trans thing is, well, let's dismiss these detransitioners because for the greater good, we don't want their message out because it'll hurt the most of people that they believe they're helping. So I think that's a big tension. And it's it's interesting because our entire profession was based on individualism. So it's it's hard it's hard to wrap my head around therapists that won't listen to someone, be present with someone who's in the room and they're projecting with what they think is right because of a social justice issue. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being 
and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. There's a fine line between that collectivism and the negative stereotyping. Yeah. The unhelpful stereotyping that goes along with it and actual, you know, cultural competency. Yeah. Right? Like, it's it's culturally competent to understand that, for instance, if you have someone of, uh, let's say, Indian descent coming to you as a client, it's uh, very typical for um, their family, their parents to ex- expect them to become mm-hmm. a doctor, right? Like that is, that's just cultural competency is understanding yeah. that in, you know, certain, you know, immigrants from certain parts of the world, people of certain religions or whatever, that their families hold certain expectations mm-hmm. of them. Right. Or that it's culturally normal if you're, you know, if your parents immigrated from India, it's also culturally normal to live with your parents until you mm-hmm. get married. Right. And 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 you you better understand that so that you're not having like a white Western frame of view that says living with your parents. Yeah, that's different, though. Until you're 25 is bad. Yeah. Right. That's so that's cultural competency. It's not stereotyping. It's just understanding that there are certain things that are more normative mm-hmm. in some cultures and others. And that helps you give context for, you know, the particular things that your client's saying, how normal or abnormal are they within their cultural yeah, context. Yeah, I think that's that's a good um, point. You know, because I, I think it's strange. I'm saying individualism, but what I mean by individualism is that individual and what where they're coming from, their cultural values, as opposed to yours. So, um, yeah. So if you're working with someone that has right. that ideology and they come from that, you need to acknowledge that. And if they don't, you don't need to push it on something else onto them. Whatever the thing is, it's about being present with who's in front of you. And that's how always how I believe cultural competency was. It wasn't just recognizing my white privilege and that's what I'm supposed to know and not actually know who's in front of me. Yeah, and an individualistic approach also is going to take into consideration how important is this person's culture to yep, them exactly. how big of a role do their does their cultural legacy play and if so to what extent does their particular cultural or familial legacy um align with what we consider the norms of that culture or stray mm-hmm. from it you know like again sticking within like the let's say someone from indian descent like you know did their parents have an arranged marriage or did they immigrate because they were rebels right. who rejected arranged marriage and like fell in love you know yeah. and, like, or you know did they reject or stick with their families like religions or other traditions so individual that individual approach includes understanding is this somebody with strong cultural ties what is their relation mm-hmm. to their culture are they more of a rugged individualist within the context of their yeah. culture there's just a lot to be open to and we have to be aware of the filters that we're perceiving people through to exactly. make sure that we're able to perceive what we need to be able to see. I about just think it's really important to be present with who you're with. I, I mean, to put it really simply. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, your resources, a parent's guide to mental health, and that is at the truthful therapist.org. Yes. yes. Okay. Um, is there anything I didn't ask you that would help us get, an overview of who this is for and why people should. Yeah. And so it's, it's geared towards parents. I originally 
had the concept for homeschooled parents, but I realized that it can really be for any parents. I do think actually new therapists or therapists could benefit from it, especially those who are working with parents. Maybe it could be a tool for you to work together with parents on um, certain there. I mean, there's some just basic things like I just did a DBT overview just so parents would understand if, if the, their child was in a program learning DBT so they would know what it is an overview it's it's not in detail because it's more complex than what I wrote because I did like a six or seven page thing and there's you know 100 page workbooks on these things um but yeah it's just basically a, a toolkit for parents and and what I have out there there is a lot there's 10 courses out there right now on different subjects but I am going to be adding more there's basically an infinite amount of subjects and I honestly hope to incorporate other professionals in there not just me maybe you <laughs> I don't know um, but I want to incorporate people with other specific expertise I've connected for example with a therapist who has more of an expertise on autism and children and parenting within that framework and that's not an area of my expertise so there's going to be a lot more added it's it's the way it works is you have if you sign up, you get a yearly subscription. Right now, there's 10 classes, but there'll be many more added on throughout the year on all different subjects. And hopefully, I'll get feedback, too, on what what people are looking for. So That's great. And so this is an adjunct to therapy. It's a guide to help people find the right therapist yes. and know how to engage with their kids' therapy. Is it also appropriate in families where maybe the kid doesn't need therapy or doesn't want therapy, but just the parent wants to kind of DIY it? Well, I mean, in this day and age, like you said, with social media and so on being such an influence, I think this could sneak up on any family. So I think it could be beneficial to have some understanding. Um, obviously, if, if they really think it's not needed, I, I can't <laughs> say, but... I think I think this sneaks up on a lot of families that they would otherwise believe they wouldn't need it. So yeah, I think it's I think it's a good thing to be aware of to be able to look out for some of the signs. I did do an overview on gender dysphoria where I talked about maybe what are some of the signs of a child who might not have have a disposition for it that suddenly, which now they call as you know rapid onset gender dysphoria. Uh, and I went through a lot of bullet points, things that I know you know very well. But to those that are fresh to it, to give parents a little bit of a, a, an awareness of what's going on, you know, the, like you said, the social media and and all the different things that are that are influences for them to be aware of. And then I gave some tips on things you can say to help prevent maybe um, your, their child from being indoctrinated by teachers, and maybe if pronouns are being pushed on their child, what maybe what they could say. So some of it just has some general tips for parents in, in this world that, if especially if these don't match their values, these ideologies, I think it can be beneficial. So Wonderful. So people can find all of that at thetruthfultherapist.org. And where else can they follow you? So I'm most active on Instagram, which is the.truthfultherapist or at the.truthfultherapist. And then I am on Twitter. Stephanie got me onto Twitter, and I appreciate it. She's really supported me on there. And I'm, I want it to be the truthful therapist, but it's too many letters. So I'm redpilled LCSW, at, re, at redpilled LCSW on Twitter. 
Okay. And I think you've also done a few other podcasts. I have. So if people want to listen to those, what shows have you done? So I was just on, um, it's called Leaving the Left for Liberty. That was the big one I had just done. Um, Who else have I done now? I'm blinking. (laughs) I've done a few others. Um, Will Roosh, is that how you pronounce his last name? I did a teacher with him. I did, I did a nice podcast with him. We had a nice conversation. Um, I was on, Oh, what's his podcast called? Um, oh, Cylinder Radio, I believe is actually what it's called. Um, I think he'd probably like to have you on there too. Um, I also did, I had a nice conversation with Buck Angel, who is a trans man who's been very outspoken against this trans agenda. And he's very concerned for what's happening with children. Those are the three I can remember off the top of my head. And then I have a few more coming that are on, on my calendar. So... Okay, wonderful. Well, Pamela, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.